This morning, we're going to kind of continue our journey through the uh, concept of spiritual economics. And um, I, I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. It's, it's about generosity. We've talked about the stewardship of our lives in a holistic sense the first Sunday. Last Sunday, we talked about simplifying. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about living a life of generosity. You know, most people think of generosity in terms of the almighty dollar. But, but generosity is much bigger than that. It's not just about money. We're talking about a way of life that begins with a question, and the question is this. What of me can be shared or given away? What of me can be shared or given away? I, I thought about this concept of generosity, and the other concept that came to my mind was this, a second question. Which life are we living for? This one or the life that follows? We're so caught up living in the here and now that we forget that we're investing in a life that follows this life on earth. If we believe in eternity, we believe that we are making an investments that are going to go on for eternity, not just for today. So I'm going to share with you what I've discovered, I believe, are three factors that will help us live life in the eternal and be motivated us motivating us to be more generous with our lives in general. So here are the three factors this morning. The first one is what I call the judgment factor. The judgment factor. Because everything we do during this lifetime will be tested by fire when we begin the next life. That's a fact. In fact, we're going to discover at that point what our net worth really is. See, we, we think of our net worth today, when we use that concept, we think about our assets and our liabilities, and we hope that our assets outweigh our liabilities, and so we have this net worth. So if I, if I have $100 in liabilities and I have $200 in asset, my net worth is $100. Well, our real net worth is going to be in heaven. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me read this verse to you. It says, now anyone who builds on that foundation may use gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But there's going to come a time of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has done. Everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but like someone escaping through a wall of flames. See, there is going to come a day where we have to face an evaluation of the way we lived our lives here on earth. No, we're not going to be judged like the non-believer, but we are going to be evaluated for those things that we invested in that were kingdom-oriented. And so consequently, what kind of net worth will we have when it comes to that day? In other words, what's going to be left over that's not going to be burned? Matthew 6, verse 19 through 20 says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they will be safe from thieves. So he's saying all the stuff that we're trying to hang on to here is going to perhaps get rusty and moth-eaten, but in the future, if we lay up treasures there, that's where it's going to really last. Uh, do anybody watch American Pickers? It's one of my favorite reality shows. How many watch American Pickers? 
It's, it's really a, a, I enjoy it a lot. It, it's a, about a couple of guys who are pickers. And what pickers do is they, they kind of sift through other people's collections and junk to find priceless items that they can turn around and resell. And so they travel all over the country finding these places that where people have hoarded and collected all this stuff. And they sift through it and see if they can buy their rusty old objects and turn them into some kind of a treasure. And what's interesting to me is the kind of stuff, it blows my mind. I, I remember a guy, his name was Walt, and, and he was in our church back in Iowa when I was in Iowa years ago. And Walt was a farmer, and Walt would never buy anything new, and, and he would buy all this used stuff, and he had barns and barns full of old junk old cars and, and all kinds of beat up stuff. In fact, he would never buy anything new to a point where he would be out in the field and he would be uh, plowing with an old tractor and plow. And if the tractor would break down, he'd just park it in the field. And so it looked like a battlefield when you went to Walt's place. You could see equipment, all kinds of implements all over the place. In fact, one time he was stretching fence with a tractor and the, fe- uh, the tractor broke down and he decided to make the tractor the corner post. So he just attached the wire to the tractor. I mean, that was Walt. I mean, he'd drive a corn sheller to church. And the corn sheller had a leaky radiator, so he would fill it up when he left home and when he got to church. Anyways, I look at all of that, and I I just see all this junk, all this stuff. I mean, he had a fortune in, in scrap metal. But how many of us have got stuff that's pretty much going to burn because we can't take it with us. And I think about all these people that have all these great collections of stuff and, and you know, like they're going to pull a, you know, a, a, a U-Haul with their hearse. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're going to take it with them. And somebody someday when they die is going to have to sift through all that stuff. See, our net worth is a result of only those things rightly invested in the kingdom to come. That's where our net worth really is. We think that our net worth is what we have today, but really our net worth is going to be for all eternity. So my question as we start here this morning is, what is your net worth? What are you laying up in terms of your time, your talent, and your treasures? What are being laid up in heaven where they won't be moth-eaten, where they will be rewarded for because you've made a kingdom investment? Here's the second factor that I want to bring up. The judgment factor is clear. We're all going to be assessed. There's all going to be accountable someday for what we spend our money on, for how we use our talents and our abilities. But secondly, there's this what I call the faith factor. And the faith factor in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we know that's defined faith. It says, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It's the evidence of things we cannot yet see. So I got to be a person of faith in order to be a person who lives a life of generosity. Well, what does that look like? Well, in Hebrews 11, verse 4, where there's this whole list of the hall of famers of faith, right? And one of the verses in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it talks about Abel. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. God accepted Abel's offering to show that he was a righteous man. And although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us because of his faith. Why? What was the difference between Cain and Abel's offering? Well, Abel gave sacrificially, which took more faith. 
Cain gave a little bit of his crop, which was not a big sacrifice for him. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice because it was done in faith rather than just something that was a discipline or something that was required. There's a difference here. See, Abel didn't hold back anything from the Lord, but Cain did. See, when we invest in the kingdom, we don't often see what those results are. I know for, for my own life, I've been, spent a lifetime investing in people because of being a pastor and doing ministry. And it's really difficult sometimes to invest in people because you never really know what kind of return you get. You don't know what's going on in people's hearts. And it's, it's kind of a difficult life to live. And so by faith, you, you invest in people all the time, not seeing sometimes the tangible results, which is frustrating at times. But one thing we know for sure, if we're investing in faith sacrificially, there is going to be a return on that investment in heaven. Amen? That's what it's about. And so the application here is that I must be willing to give sacrificially even though I can't see what the tangible result of that gift may be. See, that's an act of faith. How many times have you invested in the life of another person or invested financially in some things for the kingdom and you've never really seen the result? See, that's what faith is all about. It's the substance of things hoped for and things not seen. Some of it, it takes a lot more faith to sacrificially give than others. Here's another application. Generous people must be willing to sacrificially give. You know, statistics tell us that the most generous people are usually the poorest in our country today. Did you know that? The most generous people are the poorest people. You look at the illustration in Scripture of the widow who gave her only little bit called the widow's mite. You remember that story? But she gave all she had. It was just a few pennies. And what was fascinating about that is that Jesus was watching the whole time in this particular service. He was watching the rich people give theirs, and he was watching the poor people give theirs. And it's really interesting. Wouldn't it be fascinating if Jesus was sitting next to us on a Sunday morning and watching what we gave? And so I thought it might be interesting for us to see that this morning. And so I put down some statistics and I was wondering how we are doing because the national average for the evangelical Christian today is giving about 4% of their income. We know that scripture is very clear in the Old Testament for sure that a tithe is at least 10%, maybe even more. I think the New Testament uh, obvious if we're giving is more sacrificial giving, whatever that looks like. That could be way more than 10%. For some, it could be 4%, but it's a sacrificial gift. So I asked Clovis to kind of give me an idea of how we do here at Cornerstone. So I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to see that. So our, here's some numbers that you can look at. Um, the national average we said was 4%. We should go to the next slide. I discovered as I went online that the median income in Prescott today per home, per household, is around $46,000. You say, well, I don't make that much money. Well, that's per household. That's probably a two-income family for a lot of folks here in Prescott. So if you take that $46,000 and you figure a tithe off of that for an annual tithe would be about $4,600, right? Can we go to the next slide? At Cornerstone here, our annual budget is right around $792,000. And so if there are, we've discovered that over the last year, there's about 400 giving units who have actually given to Cornerstone over this last year. 
we decided to just take 300 of those to be conservative. And if each unit were to give a tithe off of that $4,600 a month or annually, the annual budget could be $1,380,000. It would actually almost double what we were giving. So we can be thrilled that we're probably giving about 5% here at Cornerstone. But if we were really able to tie, just think of the amount of ministry that could go from the church given in that light. I know about 10 years ago, I did a, a series on stewardship in my own church. And I just decided to go ahead and list what everybody gave in the church from top to bottom. Um, that'd be kind of scary. But I didn't put their names on there, by the way. But it was fascinating. We had 450 family units at the time, and over 200 gave less than $50 per year, per year. So it's really interesting to see, and what you've discovered in most churches, that the minority carries the majority of the budget. There's their old 20-80 rule, and that's pretty typical in a local church. I just thought it'd be interesting for you to see some of these things. But what, what we're saying here is, is that there's a faith factor when it comes to our generosity. And I don't want to live in it to just money, but I just thought that would be a tangible way for you to see the expression of what a tithe can actually do. But I want, more importantly, to realize that giving, generosity is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And if it's not an act of faith, then it really is not sacrificial. And it's really not that acceptable to God, at least what we see with Cain and Abel. So that's the second factor, the faith factor. Now I want you to see the third factor, which is kind of fascinating as I, as I studied this, and I call it the rewards factor. Here's an application. God has designed an incentive package for those who invest in the future. What's really great about investing in the kingdom, investing for eternity, is that there is an incentive package with it. In other words, what he's saying is if we invest today our lives for the kingdom, there is going to be a great return that we can look forward to in eternity. Let me read to you Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these faithful ones died without receiving what God had promised them. In other words, all these Hall of Famer faith people didn't see the results, obviously, of the investment that they made while they were on earth. However, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed the promises of God. They agreed that they were no more than foreigners and nomads on earth. You see, they really understood what it means to live for the eternal. In verse 16, it says, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland that that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. So he said, these people invested their lives in the kingdom because God had a place prepared for them called heaven, a place or a prize, a heavenly city. In Hebrews eleven thirty nine, it says, all these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. They didn't see it all. So that's faith, right? Because it was the substance of things hoped for and things not seen. For God had far better things in mind for us that would also benefit them, for they can't receive the prize at the end of the race until we finish the race. So he says there's a prize at the end of our race. Paul talks about it called the crown of righteousness, when in reality that crown of righteousness is really the reward of heaven. So the reason why we're generous is because there is a reward set up for us in heaven. Heaven itself becomes a part of our reward. Now, is heaven a reality? Yes, heaven is a reality. And, and as I thought about heaven for a moment, I thought, well, what is heaven really like? 
It's really hard to describe heaven when you think about it, but yet there is some description in Revelation chapter 21. Heaven is called paradise. Now, I, I don't know uh, what paradise looks like, but I can think of some wonderful places that I've been here on earth that I would call paradise. So if heaven's paradise, that's not a bad place to be. It's not a bad reward for our generosity. It's called the holy city, and it's described in some detail. It says it's filled with the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God actually illuminates this city called the city, the great city of Jerusalem, if you will, uh, the, the holy city, if you will. And so God's glory illuminates it. It's not the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's God's glory. I don't understand that or comprehend that, but that's a pretty powerful thought. It goes on to say that there are 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And what's interesting, they describe heaven as a 1,400-mile cube, a 1,400-mile cube. It's 14 miles high, wide, and deep. Now, he says the walls are 216 feet thick, made of jasper, and the city was made basically out of pure gold. Now, maybe that doesn't turn you on. Maybe that's, that's so mystical and so unbelievable, it's hard to really get your arms around it. But there are some very practical things that we find out in Scripture as well. It says that there's no more sin in heaven. Now, what would that be like? I mean, we live in a world that is so screwed up right now, right? I mean, there, everything you see on television, on the news, is just absolutely unbelievable. I just got a, an email, in fact, yesterday from a friend of mine asking for prayer because he has some friends who are missionaries over in um, Iraq who have stood with some of these Christians who are being beheaded by ISIS, and they've decided not to move out of the city and be evacuated because they want to stand with these women and children who are being massacred by ISIS people. And I just think about that, and I think, oh, Lord, please come quick. The sin is so rampant in our culture today. Think of a place where there's no more sin, none. I mean, does that mind-boggling? I mean, does that just grab you? No more crying or sorrow. I got a phone call uh, yesterday evening uh, about one of our deputies with the ICSO whose wife died last night, 47 years old. And I, I thought the sorrow of that, the, the crying that must go with that, the tears of that loss, no more crying, no more sorrow. Hey, think about this. No more sickness. We're going to have a glorified body in heaven. No more aches and pains. No more MS. No more ALS. No more cancer. No more pain. I mean, for once in our lives with the glorified body, we can look in the mirror and say, you know, not bad, you know? I mean, God's going to give us this, this wonderful place and no more death, no more dying. It's hard to even grasp all of this, but it's the reward, it's the prize that these men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 look forward to as an incentive to give their lives away to whatever the kingdom required. So there's not only the reward of heaven, but there's the reward of our deeds. And this is interesting. This is the stuff that doesn't burn when tested by fire. We read about it earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.14. says, if the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. That's really what our net worth is. 1 Peter 1.4 describes it as our inheritance. Do you realize, you know, we spend a lifetime accumulating, hopefully, resources that we are eventually going to probably pass on to our children. So that's their inheritance. Do we realize that when we invest in the kingdom, we're investing in our own inheritance? 
That's a, that's a really interesting concept. You say, well, doesn't that create a lot of selfishness and motivation from us as a selfish? You know, I didn't set this system up. God did. He said, look, if you really invest for the kingdom now, you are going to have a greater inheritance in heaven. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, that brings up obviously a question. With this incentive package, does that mean there's going to be some sort of a caste system in heaven? Well, we don't know for sure, but Scripture does say the last will be first and the first will be last. We do know that he's preparing a place. So I'm not really sure, but all I do know is that it really should be an incentive for us to realize that everything we do, say, and give on this planet today is making an investment in our own inheritance for the future where reality really exists. We think it's all about today. You see what I'm saying? We need to learn how to live for eternity, not live for just today. Here's an application. When I give generously toward the kingdom, I'm investing in my future. Have you ever thought about it that way? For some of you, maybe you haven't thought about that because it sounds a little selfish. But God can sort out our motive. But the point is, is that when I invest for the future, for the kingdom, I'm investing in my own inheritance. I'm laying up treasures in heaven, not just here on earth. It's a powerful truth that we need to understand. So when we're stingy and selfish and withholding from the Lord here, we're just lowering our net worth in heaven where it really matters. Let me just close with some things that I want to share with you because these are some things that are kind of dangling out there that are thoughts that I've had as I studied this past portion of, of, of the sermon about generosity. And there's some scriptures that I attached to here, and I, I haven't written them out, but I, I just want you to maybe if you would write them down and take a look at them, I think it'd be great for your small group discussions. But here they are. Here's number one. You see, when we refuse to be generous, we are robbing God. Now, we don't, we don't fully comprehend that, but Malachi 3.8 tells us that when we refuse to give we, uh, of our time, talent, and treasure, we're robbing God. We're cheating God. Why? Because God owns everything. Everything we have is his. And so it's like taking something that is his and saying, no, I'm going to take it for myself, even though it's rightfully yours. That's thievery. So we're robbing God. We're cheating God when we don't give of ourselves or give of our time, talent, and treasures. So that's an important concept we need to be reminded of. Here's the second one that many of you know. God gives generously to those who give generously to him. There's a sowing and reaping principle in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11, where he says, if you sow generously, you will reap generously. And he's not just talking about in the future. There are some very great perks about sowing generously while we're here on earth. And we're not talking about the prosperity gospel. We're just saying that if I invest today in the things of the kingdom today, God will make sure that I am generously blessed. It may not be financially, but it'll be the blessing of seeing some life transformed. or It'll be the blessing of the opportunity just to be able to give of something. There's a great blessing that's attached to it. So who, anybody who gives generously will have generosity given back to him. Here's the third concept. Here's another thought. We will never give generously until we first give of ourselves. 
John preached in this a couple of years ago, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. When we look at the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, it's Paul trying to motivate the other churches to give generously. Why? Because there was a church in Macedonia that somehow figured out how to give sacrificially. And he said the reason why they could give sacrificially is because they first, what, gave of themselves. See, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your body as a total sacrifice. So he's not going to get anything of you until he gets all of you first. So we give generously because we first give of ourselves. Here's the fourth principle of generosity. Generosity proves your love is real for God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8, Paul said, listen, We've always said that they'll know we are Christians by our love, right? We have love for one another. We always quote that. But they'll know if our love for God is real by how generous we are. That's a, that's a great concept. They'll know our love for God is real by how generous we are today. Powerful, powerful truth. Number five, true generosity requires a quality sacrifice. I'll read this, Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. You see, why was Abel's offering acceptable and not Cain's? Because he gave the best. He gave a quality sacrifice. He didn't give the leftovers. He didn't make it easy. By faith, Abel gave, and God honored that because it was a quality sacrifice. Obviously, the question today is, are we making quality sacrifices by faith for eternity? For most of you, you, you know what I've shared this morning. This is not new stuff, new information. But God help us to start thinking more in the eternal than in the temporal. Amen? This is not all there is. This life is not all there is. And we accumulate all this stuff, and we're going to pass it on to our kids, and I think that's great. And our kids are going to have to sift maybe through a lot of stuff that we're giving them. And half the stuff I've discovered most of the kids, kids don't want. You know what I'm saying? I think we just we forget that we're investing for eternity, not just for today, not just for our kids, but we're investing in our own inheritance. So the bottom line questions are these. These are interesting questions. It says, what can I give out of what I can do? What can you do? How has God wired you? How has God talented you? How has God gifted you? So what can you give out of that reserve that God has blessed you with? That's a question you need to react to. What am I giving in terms of what I can do in my life? Second question, what can I give through what I am? Now, this is an interesting one. Because who are you? You see, when, when we accept Jesus Christ into our lives, we have taken on his identity. And so what would Christ do is what we need to represent in terms of who we are. We just sang about it a little bit ago, right? Let people see the Christ that's in me, lived out in me. So what can I give through what I am? In other words, on a day-to-day -day basis, what would Jesus do? You remember that old thing? Here's the third one. What can I give through what 
I have. In other words, what has God blessed you with in terms of stuff? And what can I give there that God may be asking me to invest for kingdom perspectives? Hard questions, but reasonable questions to ask ourselves when it comes to the life of generosity. Well, that's it, folks. Spiritual economics, stewardship of life, living more simply, and living a life of generosity. How are we doing? How are we doing? Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for these basic truths that probably most of us sitting here know, but we often forget. And I pray today that we're just simply reminded, Lord, that we're not here forever. We, we spend so much time on the here and now and the tangible and the temporal, and Satan loves to have us there. But God, help us to realize that this isn't our only life. That this, there's a life to live after this if we know Jesus. And it's an exciting life and an incredible opportunity for us to have this prize called heaven and to live in paradise where there's sin-free and, and sickness-free. Lord, that alone should motivate us to think about eternity. But Lord, help us to also realize that you have created us to serve and, and to be generous folks, and um, you have rewards waiting for us. And God, I, I just pray that we all keep that in the back of our minds on a day-to-day -day basis, that this isn't all there is. For those of us, Lord, who maybe are cheating God a bit, I pray that they would remember that scripture that says that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. God, that's the first step of generosity is to give ourselves to you. And if there's somebody here this morning that hasn't done that yet, God, I pray that they would be inspired just by knowing that heaven is awaiting them if they do that, if they give their lives to you as an act of generosity. What more could we ask for, Lord, than you gave your son, Jesus Christ, the most generous gift for God so loved the world that he gave. God, you made a 100% investment in us. Help us to make a 100% investment in you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.